0: The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via @podnos podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com.
1: true epics that require time and patience to unfold upon their audience. Others are brief fables that can be told in an instant, but will still leave a lasting impact. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer-critic and veal-and-ham pie, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's seminar covers a program of short films, namely the 1972 Spanish drama La Cabina, the 1939 animation Peace on Earth, the 1977 public information film Apaches, and the nineteen twenty nine Laurel and Hardy comedy Men of War. My guest is Paul Morris, and you join us in the deserted auditorium of a cameo cartoon theatre. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jeremy. How are you today?
0: Uh I'm I'm well, uh slightly deflated by some of the things I've been forced to watch this morning. But uh
1: <laughs> Forced, but yeah. I'm I'm bearing up. Um well as you probably know, Uh, Cinema Limbo is approaching its 100th episode. So to that end, I'm doing a special season devoted to films that I wouldn't normally cover, that fall outside the traditional remit. And with this episode, I'm covering short films. Right. Normally, I insist that a film has to be feature length, um, which, according to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, means a minimum of 40 minutes. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Weirdly... BAFTA says that 40 minutes is the upper limit for short films, but the lower limit for feature films is an hour and ten. Good God. So films like, for example, the newly released The Amusement Park, a long-lost George Romero film, which runs 52 minutes, is neither a short nor a feature, according to BAFTA.
0: Do they have a category into which it would fall, or does it not exist by their terms?
1: people don't really make films that long anymore. So it's a weird one. Hmm. But um, I chose a selection of four short films that I thought would be a a selection. So we have a comedy, a drama, uh, a public information film, and some animation. (laughs) That together make up a a roughly feature-length programme. And although the, the selections I chose were... I chose them all individually as things that I thought would be worth talking about or worth looking at. They do have an overall theme of the violence in man.
0: I mm. feel yes, and that was just accidental. Yeah, Which... it
1: just kind of it just kind of cropped up as, as I was thinking about it. But yeah, the, the so, four films I chose entirely separately.
0: So that says much more about you than it does about about the films themselves. The fact that these four films you chose are seemingly at random.
1: Well, not random, but I, I thought these were things that were in in my uh, on the periphery of my eye line. I, I thought... have
0: been, I have been wondering what the link is, and um, I'd I think I've been overthinking it because the the violence inherent in innate in man does seem to cover it, and uh, I hadn't quite got there. It was, <laughs> three of them seem to have uh, very obvious superficial links um, in. A general nightmarish stroke horror way, but uh, the, the fourth, the comedy, it seemed like the odd one out, so mm. yeah, yeah, and yet okay. that, that too will, is about do.
1: that too is about you know, it's almost like um, uh, the film Buffalo Soldiers that you know, deprived of war, man will go uh, to war against himself. with mm. soldiers on shore leave starting a fight.
0: The other the closest other connection I got was something that was Sense of uh, things escalating out of control in a which it, which borders on the nightmarish, mm. but it's put um, in the comedy. Are we not saying what they are just yet? In the comedy, the, no. it doesn't become a, a nightmare, but it could. It's just the treatment that differs. Yes,
1: it's just yes. It's it's the it's the traditional Laurel and Hart, It's Laurel and Hardy. I mean, people who've read the description <laughs> they know what it is by now. Oh yes, I'm acting so.
0: like a, an elderly actor on a Doctor Who commentary. Who's not giving away what happens at the end of the story as if anybody listening to it wouldn't have seen it a hundred times before? There, yes. I,
1: I do remember a Doctor Who commentary where one of the commentators, was also, an older person, was a bit confused as to how the viewer was supposed to be able to watch the programme when they were talking all over it.
0: Mm. Yes, bless them. They sometimes mm. keep quiet in a, to just try and to avoid um, wasting the, the viewer's money, don't
1: they? What was the first. Oh. Um, Film to have a commentary on a home video release.
0: Oh, I don't know.
1: King Kong, the Laserdisc release in 1983. Goodness. Uh, of the original King Kong was the very first commentary on a film.
0: That must be interesting. Does I it expect take so.
1: Off? It's it... it's unfortunately it's not cast and crew. It's a critic. Oh, I see. Uh, which is a shame because you know you could have had Fay Ray on there.
0: Mm. Uh, this guess is what I was thinking it, you would have still had time wouldn't you if...
1: I mean it, it, apparently Peter Jackson had set aside the last line of his remake of King Kong for Faye Ray to deliver in a cameo um, because she was still around in the early 2000s but uh, unfortunately her health wasn't up to it particularly the journey to New Zealand presumably um, mm. so uh, she couldn't make it anyway the First of our four films is the 1972 Spanish short film, La Cabina, The Telephone Booth. Right. Yes. How did you come
0: across this? Is it uh, because it appears to be a television, is that what you just said, <laughs> a television film? So, uh, but has it entered the wider world of film criticism? Well, film it's,
1: it's something that captured people's attention, particularly, I think, in the UK when it was first shown because of the central concept I think, wormed its way into people's nightmares. Hmm. That it was this kind of precursor to hauntology, perhaps. That it was something seen late night on BBC Two or Channel Four that haunted the imagination. Um, But at the same time, it was also very highly acclaimed at the time. It was um, nominated for the... Oh, no, it won the International Emmy in 1973. Um, and is the only Spanish production to date to have won that. And it seemed to go in, enter into the the Spanish national consciousness at the time as well, because even years later, um a sort of sequel was created um as part of a promotional campaign, which I'll talk about when we get to the end. Had you seen it before? Had you heard of it?
0: No, no, it's entirely new to me.
1: So the the story is very simple and Fortunately, although it's it's been uploaded to YouTube, which is how you saw it, and we'll put a link on the page, um, it's been uploaded to YouTube by the original broadcaster, so it's in beautiful, pristine condition. But obviously, it has no subtitles. Mm. Um, did you find this a problem at all? Because there's little dialogue of note, really. I didn't.
0: Um, I well, there we were. I was a few minutes in when I noticed that there were some lengthy exchanges of dialogue which weren't I, I was expecting you know, a few muttered exclamations which I wouldn't necessarily expect to be translated but once there seemed to be some extended bits of dialogue I was wondering if perhaps I was looking at the wrong copy so I got in touch with you and asked should I <laughs> should I track down a, a, a subtitle version and I had started fiddling with my phone to try and find one but um, you said don't worry about it it's quite a visual piece which I had already spotted, mm. I'm quite shrewd like that. So uh, so I carried on without, and in, it made me wonder if perhaps uh, the link between these four pieces, without getting ahead of myself, was that they're all films which contain dialogue, but you could easily take the dialogue out and they would work as silence.
1: I'm not sure that would work in the case of some parts of the Laurel and Hardy short. Hmm. There's a lot of punchlines in there that only make sense with dialogue. Although, that came just at the beginning of sound film. And that's something we can talk about later as well. Yeah. And even the, a lot of the um, the moralising in the animated piece on Earth comes across mainly through dialogue. Even yeah, though, I it, mean, even, even though the, the storytelling there is quite visual.
0: Indeed. I, I wasn't saying that you wouldn't lose anything if you took the dialogue out, but that what will be left. Because they're all such strongly visual pieces. Yes, they are. They're, they're led by the Visual to me again, i think the atmosphere i
1: i i think that's that says more about me perhaps that I like things with a, <laughs> a strong visual sense rather than uh, you know a, a man in a room
0: <laughs> yeah, and um i of course uh, say of course i of course rather too obsessed with dialogue and as yeah as when I write there's something i have to try and um
1: well, you write for audio, so it's kind of. I, I you're, do. You're, you're kind but of bound by it.
0: Am I dialogue-driven because I mostly write for audio, or do I mostly write for audio because that's the only thing I can write? I do try to be less reliant on on dialogue, and watching you know, watching films like this is very instructive,
1: hmm.
0: and I shall no doubt switch my style in immediately starting from tomorrow.
1: Well, have you ever listened to um, Andrew Sachs's radio play, *The Revenge*? No. Have you heard of it?
0: Ah, uh, I'm not sure.
1: It's a half-hour radio play with no dialogue. <laughs> it's a story told entirely through wordless exclamations and sound effects. But the, oh, sto- like, but like, the like story. Like *Mr. Bean*, like- you mean? Yes, but it's a radio play. Right. And the story that it tells is very clear and very straightforward and easily comprehensible to anyone. But it's this kind of experiment in how can you tell a story just through sounds, not even words, no pictures, just sounds. And it works extremely well. It's very clever. It It turns up on um, Radio 4 Extra every so often. It's, It's rather good. But the... Uh, La Cabina starts with a phone booth being delivered to a beautiful-looking plaza somewhere in Spain, uh, somewhere in a Spanish city, and industrial music, very upbeat, cheery music plays on the soundtrack as four men get out and uh polish it and bolt it to the ground and get it all ready for someone to come along. And there are various you know, passersby and school children going by, you know, with this with this phone booth standing in the middle of the, uh, there. Um, one boy kicks a ball into the the booth and goes inside and gets it out and the father waves the boy off as he gets on the bus he walks back through the plaza and goes inside to make a phone call but he picks up the receiver and is about to dial when he hears that there's no dial tone at the other end and as he's fiddling with the phone to try and make it work the door behind him gently swings shut and just clicks closed and so at first, you don't know if this is even a real phone booth. This could be some kind of public art installation. Hmm. Um, as the man tries to get out. And at, at first, the tone is very comical. That he's in this ridiculous situation in a public place. And gradually, he attracts a crowd of people. And there are children and women gathering to watch. and He's getting increasingly angry. And the little children start taunting him and men sit down on chairs to watch at this spectacle and then as a as like a strong man a bodybuilder type comes out and just clears the path for, for anyone and wrenches on the handle and eventually all he does is just pull the handle off it is playing like it could be a silent comedy like mr bean or something at this point is yes isn't it? um there's say someone tries to charge the, at the door and they just bounce off and there are women sitting knitting like they're on <laughs> a little day out. Yep, or or at the foot of a guillotine. Exactly, that's, that's something that I read that it's, it starts to look a little bit like a public execution or <laughs> some kind of humiliation. A uh, man comes out with a screwdriver to try and you know, take some of the panels off but there's no gap anywhere. It all seems to be smooth and solid all the way around and all the... Screws have um, blind heads And there's a, there's a man with a tray of baked goods Walking around with it on his head And people <laughs> picking off food from the top And finally the uh, the police arrive And they send for a workman And the the, the police try and um, pull the handle off But they put that that just pulls off again And everyone laughs at the hilarious police
0: Yep, more slapstick and pratfalls it's interesting because it does look it is structured and, in some ways, acted as though it could be a slapstick comedy, but nobody. Nobody's reacting that way, and particularly not the bloke in the booth. This is, he's not um, pulling. He's not mugging, pulling gest- a of furious frustration or, or, wayyada sort of gestures. Yes. He's, he's playing it completely straight. I started to realise at this point what an impressive performance that is, because he really has nothing more to do than make, than react in silent fury for half an hour to a, basically the same situation, just continuing to escalate. Hmm. And how it doesn't, his performance doesn't become repetitive is, is fascinating to watch.
1: It's, um, it's directed by Antonio Machero, and the... Uh... The lead actor is Jose Luis Lopez Vazquez. Hope hmm. that's pronounced, uh, pronounced correctly. Um, and uh, I believe he was something of a um, something of a nonconformist, someone who was covertly somewhat critical of uh, the Franco regime of the time. Because as the film progresses, you do get a sense that this is an allegory of something <laughs> of Francoist fascist Spain oppression yeah, with all the people crowding around to watch the man being publicly humiliated
0: and we can talk at the end about whether or not to what extent it is queuing into very Spanish sensibility and to what Mm. extent it's universal because as you said it does translate and was appreciated worldwide
1: Um, the man sits down as uh, finally the fire brigade arrives and now the chief is unimpressed by all this, and he, again, manages to pull the handle off. And he and his men come up with a a sensible strategy. They use a ladder, they climb onto the roof of the booth, which has a a flat glass roof, and they're going to use a hammer to smash it in. The man's cowering in the corner, covering his face from the glass, and suddenly, the truck reappears.
0: Now, with hindsight, this is a turning point in the narrative, if we're actually taking the story seriously. Because... Mm who knows if they would have been able to break in or not we don't know if this is some sort of supernaturally impregnable box if it really has been designed to be impervious to all all attempts to, to crack it open but we'll never find out because they're
1: just too late Yes, the truck arrives it uh, unsecures the booth from the ground lifts it back onto its um, low loader the crowd all applaud as the, the man is <laughs> driven away and we then see him on his journey through the city and again, with very cheery, upbeat music, as people wave at him as they as he goes by. But again, this felt like he's on the back of a tumbril.
0: I mean, the big question is wh- whether there's any sense in which these people know, have any inkling what his fate's going to be, or if they all just think it's a hilarious jape, or is there some sense in which those two? It doesn't really matter, and they don't care because it's not happening to them.
1: You could read it, I think, in multiple ways. I think that's a, a, a strength of it. Is the allegory is so is so clever, but it's allows this range of interpretations. Are these people thinking, well, you yeah, know, there, but for the grace of God, go I, or are they just thinking that he's uh, in a hilarious situation, or could it be any one of a number of other things? Mm. Um, he as as the truck stops at a traffic light he sees a man in another phone booth, an identical phone booth, again, struggling to get the door open. But then the door does open. <laughs> it, that, that door was just sticking. So he gets out and walks off. Um, the truck starts to pass out of the centre of the city into the uh, suburb area and as we move towards the more d- desertified landscape. We pass a church where there's a funeral with a body in a glass coffin. Hmm which is, I mean, it's, it's getting a bit obvious now, I think, as the, the music and tone is starting to change. And then a second truck pulls up next to him with another booth in it, with another man inside. And they sh- the two men share a look of mutual recognition and horror that th- this is more than just an unfortunate incident. This is something frightening.
0: Yes. Another turning point.
1: The man starts calling for help, but you know, the glass keeps his voice in. And they they go past a circus where some of the circus performers play There's No Place Like Home. And I think one of them's holding a ship in a bottle as well.
0: He is. Any thoughts?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's... Again, they're looking at, at things trapped under glass as this repeated metaphor, this, this kind of idea that um, this... Image is something that recurs over and over again in modern society. This idea of being trapped inside a glass environment, where you, where, you know, you can see in and people can and people, uh, they can see out, but but there's no escape. And I think that's that using that sort of recurring image all the way through. It gives it that extra twist of this being a frightening situation.
0: I think the sad face clowns is the. Is the point at which it becomes obvious that we've turned from comedy to to tragedy somehow, Mm. or horror. And the very mournful rendition of There's No Place Like Home reminds me, I need to look up the Spanish translation.
1: Um, There's a flashback then to uh, the man remembering his son from earlier in the film. And the camera holds on his face for a long moment, and you can see him remembering. And that reminded me of the end of The Long Good Friday. It has that long, lot that very long take of Bob Hoskins' face as he's thinking his way through the whole story and how he's got into this situation where he's being driven off to his death.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, a helicopter starts to follow the truck through the countryside and the music now fully turns into almost horror film music as the, the truck goes down a deserted, winding country road and finally into a tunnel. Um where the music starts going into, like, the omen, full of (laughs) ominous chanting, and the truck goes past a bunch of other booths being prepared and loaded onto trucks, and finally stops under a huge hook, and the booth is winched up and lifted onto a conveyor, then lifted again at the end into into position, and the man looks around and finds that he is in a giant warehouse filled with identical telephone booths, and in each of the telephone booths is a corpse. And yes. right next, and in the booth right next to him is the corpse of the man he saw at the traffic light, and he strangled himself with the telephone cord.
0: Hmm.
1: So the man sc- screams silently and slides to the floor in despair, and we cut back to the plaza, where a new booth is being put neatly into place, and the door left slightly ajar, ready for the next occupant.
0: Hmm. <laughs> like a very expensive episode of Tales of the
1: Unexpected. It is. I mean, I s- say in my little write up at the end that it's worthy of Rod Serling. Yeah. I think it's it's the kind of story that he would have appreciated. This this story that on the surface is oh, you know, it's a spooky, scary story, but it has I think a lot more going on about you know, towards the end where he's on the the, the mechanisms and the the conveyor belts. It's about how oppression had almost become industrialized. That the the mechanics of the fascist regime in Spain was was like a machine. It was just a, a way of processing people and, yes. turning, and turning them into objects.
0: Yes. So it does feel a bit more expressionist mm. at that point, doesn't it? The the way we've got there to so this very, this large this enormously impressive setup from four. A workman on a rather tatty lorry at the beginning is interesting that, that's just the banality of evil the fact that these we don't know who is behind this or why or how or, mm. or who's at the top of this vast pyramid of evil but down at the bottom it's just being implemented by
1: just men in overalls
0: men in overalls like like most evil yes. well no it's, it's normally men in uniforms but there are normally men in overalls be beneath the men in uniforms
1: well they've all got a they're all wearing a badge of some sort, aren't they? But, you know it could be a some sort of fascist emblem, or it could just be the logo of the telephone company. There was a sort of sequel made many many years later, as I said, to publicize the um liberalisation of the spanish um telecoms industry oh yes <laughs> and it started again it was it was only a thirty second commercial, and it started again with the same actor trapped in a phone booth in this grey wilderness. And then pushing hard against the door, and then the door suddenly just clicks open and he's able to walk out into the open landscape again, now free with this new liberalisation of industry. So you could imagine it having almost a happy ending, but only in a commercial.
0: (laughs) Yes, yeah, only through the wonders of privatisation.
1: No. Well. But he'll also have been in that box for about 30 years.
0: Only men in the phone boxes.
1: Well, a lot of the skeletons are quite hard to tell.
0: <laughs> Just a thought.
1: Yeah. But it's a good point, yes. We only we only see male victims. That That may be significant, I don't know. It wasn't
0: something I picked up on. It's a note that my wife has just given me as she walked past. <laughs> In the interests of full disclosure, no, no, so. that's
1: that's that's a very good point. But I think it's a very uh, a very clever, a very um, engaging film. It it is, and it
0: sort of goes beyond. I don't know, not beyond. It's different to that. Um, Tell the unexpected twilight zone sort of thing. It, I found it quite moving at, at times. Because it's so cinematic, I guess. Rather than just a, there's no reason why it needs to be cine, cinematic rather than made for television to be physically powerful. But the cinematography and the acting and the music all came together at certain moments to make me really identify with this poor sod, even though I had no idea what was going on. Hmm. Which I guess is is the desired effect.
1: The 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 simple idea, the central idea, is so. Universal. Anyone can imagine getting into this kind of situation. I mean, it's happened to me where I've I've managed to get stuck in a public toilet where I can't get the door unlocked from the inside. I was
0: wondering whether to mention, it would have been a rather pathetic note to end on, but I got stuck in a public toilet in Tenerife, so I'm actually familiar with the idea of of having a babble of Spanish voices outside while I'm trying to explain that the lock has broken and I'm not just being... (laughs) <laughs> I've just barricaded myself in for political <laughs> ends.
1: Some kind of some kind of dirty protest. <laughs> Best place for it. So our second film is the animated uh, short Peace on Earth. Um directed by Hugh Harmon and nominated for the Oscar for Best Short Subject in nineteen thirty nine. Hmm. There are bits of this that seem very jolly and Disney-like, with the little, the little family of squirrels having Christmas. And there are bits of it that you could not possibly imagine ever seeing in a Disney film, like gas-marked soldiers drowning in mud.
0: Yes. And, I'm, yet, I'm not...
1: <laughs> and yet we see them both within <clears throat> seven minutes.
0: I'm not a cartoon expert, so what, what are Harmon cartoons... I remember the name, but uh, what are his cartoons normally... Like? What's the standard?
1: Uh, he uh, worked for Warner Brothers and MGM for quite a long period, uh, having started out in Disney in the 20s. And he never really seemed to have a major impact on the industry. Um, this is, I think, by far his best known work. But um, it just seems to be something that people decided this was a good idea. But notably, it was released three months after the start of World War II. And in fact, there was a remake produced in nineteen fifty-six, which updated the setting for um, the Second World War with um, ballistic, you know, missiles and nuclear weapons and such. But uh, we watched the original, and it's Indeed. it's a it's a very odd Christmas story because it starts with Christmas in an abandoned battlefield with snow falling on the guns. But there are singing animals, and we cut to a little animal town, and in one of the little houses there, there's some little chipmunk, uh, little squirrel singing, looking forward to Christmas the following day, when elderly Grandpa Squirrel comes to visit and says, oh, it's a great old world, isn't it? And so he sits down on a big ball of wool, and one of the little squirrels says, oh, Grandpa, we're well, saying uh, Merry Christmas and goodwill to all men, but what? What what are men? And Grandpa says, "Oh well, oh well, you know there aren't any men anymore." And I, and as I was watching this for the first time, I thought this is a really weird thing to show on a on a children's <laughs> program because we've got little fun talking animals telling us about how the world ended. So we um we hear about how human beings are characterized by these little animals as monsters, and we see soldiers in the First World War wearing gas masks, and being told how we were always fighting and killing with images of war and conflict, bombs and machine guns. And do you think that this quite straightforward, unvarnished depiction of the horrors of war is appropriate for a children's cartoon? Appropriate for a children's cartoon? (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, I mean, we're about to see what was considered appropriate for children's um, public educational films, but... I think, up to a certain age, children can cope with some quite powerful imagery without re- without be- being traumatised by it, because I think up to a certain age, they wouldn't really understand the full implications of the message behind this, and of course, it is it is couched in the um the cuddly narration mm. of the lovely old grandpa so i I think I don't think it's sh- it's um something that should be avoided. On grounds of taste, but whether or not it will actually have any effect, I mean, is it going? To, what, what is the effect? Is it to to produce a generation of of pacifists, or?
1: Well, I think I think it's to avoid letting the memory of the horror of the First World War pass into me- pass into myth almost to keep the the knowledge and memory of it alive. But it seems hmm. odd that it would be released just as a, another war was breaking out in Europe, particularly since when America enters the war two years later, there would be cartoons produced as propaganda in favour of the war. I mean, the the, the famous one is uh, Def Fuhrer's Face, with Donald Duck having a nightmare that he works in an armaments factory in Nazi Germany. Um, <laughs> yeah. Inspired by a song by Spike Jones and the City Slickers about farting on Hitler.
0: Yes. No, it's definitely not in line with the prevailing attitudes on um on our moral duty mm. as regards warfare.
1: But we do see, um, as we cut back to the the fireside scene, that Grandpa Squirrel's got a bit carried away in reenacting all the horrors of war and he's pretending his walking stick is a machine gun and that kind of thing. And we're told that man carried on fighting until there are only two of them left. We see these two ma- gas-masked figures on a battlefield and they shoot each other And then one of them just collapses, slowly sinking into this pit of mud and vanishes. And Grandpa says, And that was the end of the last man on earth. (laughs) And then at dawn, all the little animals come out from where they've been hiding. And they go into the ruins of a cathedral. And the wise old owl uh, reads to them from the Bible and sees that it says ah thou shalt not kill ah what what a good idea if only man had had listened to that so they start to build a town from all the the helmets and the debris left over from the war and they call it peaceville and we fade through to today where silent night is being sung say and that's why we say goodwill to all men
0: now for a very short piece which appears on the surface of a very simple message. It, it could be read in quite a few, in various different ways. It's, mm. Although it's, as you say, the imagery is all about the horrors of actual warfare and based on, heavily on the First World War, even though it was about to change significantly. I guess it's mostly First World War, but the ruined towns are something that will become much more familiar, much more associated with the Second World War. I guess aerial bombing... Was more familiar from things like this, I don't know, Guernica, and yes. more recent conflicts. But um, but um, is it is it a, is it as you say a, a primarily a religious piece, saying that we should all return to our Bible and read it again more carefully, or is it is it a much more general um, story about man just loving to fight? It, one of the examples of men just uh, just fighting each other for no reason. Is the meat eaters versus the vegetarians, which seems like a fairly random example of the sort of things that people will will get argumentative about.
1: Mm.
0: That wasn't the cause of the first the cause of the First World War, unless
1: well, the political
0: situation not... in Austria had another had a, another dimension that we don't know about.
1: Mm. The, yes, the the film leaning towards um, a more religiously motivated pacifism towards the end, I think, is in keeping with the era because the idea that you would draw your morality from anything other than religion was very much not a mainstream opinion at the time. Um, Atheism wasn't catching on the way it has now with all the young kids. (laughs) Um, We were still some time off um, Malcolm Hulk indoctrinating a a nation's children and the uh, virtues of Marxism. And even the the later remake uh, adjusts it further to shift the uh, the biblical references towards the New Testament rather than the Old Testament so making it perhaps more palatable to post-war tastes um, because you know stories about Jesus going around being a nice man to people are perhaps a little bit more palatable to yes. the youth of the 1950s and of course
0: if you do read the Old Testament um, beyond just the Ten Commandments you could get arguments <laughs> that aren't quite as yeah. clear-cut I wonder if it's a particularly American perspective, because, of course, their, their experience of the First World War and indeed their recent history of conflict was very different from what from the European perspective and indeed what the American perspective would be um, for the next half a century, where they moved from an isolationist position into <laughs> being almost perpetually at war mm. with somebody, somebody or another. So it seems this cartoon didn't have the desired effect.
1: And in particular, perhaps because the war has never had a home front uh, in effect. Wars in Europe have always been either within the nations or on their doorsteps. Whereas America hasn't had warfare on its own soil since, well, the Civil War. And with a foreign power, not since the Revolutionary War, I believe. Hmm. So that's long since passed into myth and memory. So the idea of war being something that takes place a long way away, I think, has perhaps become ingrained into the American sensibility. Whereas in Europe, for far too many people, it's something that you see every day, or you know, with a strong pair of eyes, you can see just over the horizon.
0: So rather than the, the animals looking to the fate of man, as uh, as a warning, it could be the America, America looking to the fate of Europe as a warning, mm. at a stretch, at a stretch.
1: Perhaps, yes.
0: It also, I mean, if you take it superficially, it also could have an ecological um, perspective because, of course, the animals and, and plants and nature in general will reinherit the earth if we do sink into the mud.
1: Yes. I mean... Um, only last night, uh, my mother and I finished watching the new Planet of the Apes trilogy, in which uh, man's arrogance and self destructive uh, hatred and fear winds up uh, wiping human civilization from the earth and allowing Caesar and his uh, tribe to inherit in our place. And good luck to them, I say. <laughs> I, for one, welcome our new ape overlords.
0: <laughs> Do they tell the same story in a, as a, in a trilogy, in the new Planet of the Apes, as, the, as it took them five films, I gather, in, back in the day?
1: In no. The, um, uh, the, the trilogy starts in the present day, and over the three films it moves to the point where humanity is effectively... Human civilization has, uh is extinct. That some humans survive, but they're now... Mm. As as they, they were in the original film, you know, mute cattle. Um, do they
0: do they skip the time travel aspect that creates a sort of loop in it, the original?
1: It, it has no, it has no time travel aspect, and there is no nuclear war, which is the thing that um, causes the end of the world in the original films. It lifts a lot of elements and some of the characters, but it sort of mixes them together into a new structure. But um, no one could really have guessed at how good a revived Planet of the Apes. Tra- trilogy would be, because they're really, really good. Oh, good. It's they're, been on
0: my short, on my long list for a while, so I shall move it up to the short list.
1: They're very good. They're um, very thoughtful and intelligent, and Andy Serkis' performance as Caesar, the lead ape, is truly remarkable. Um, an incredibly visual, expressive performance, entirely uh, through computer effects.
0: So, Merry Christmas, goodwill to all all animals.
1: Merry Christmas, Caesar. (laughs) Uh, Don't make the same mistakes that we did. So our third film is uh, the obligatory public information film. (laughs) Because you'd always get those if you went to the cinema in the olden days. Yeah. You always get Donald Pleasance as the voice of the Grim Reaper telling you not to play in puddles. (laughs) Or um, Brian Wilde, perhaps, from Last of the Summer Wine. Uh, as a little bird narrating the story of a boy climbing into an electricity substation for his frisbee uh, grabbing the wrong thing and then his trousers exploding
0: That was Brian Wilde as a bird
1: Yes, it was was part of a larger uh, about half hour film called Play Safe which was narrated by Brian Wilde and Bernard Cribbins Right,
0: I mean, yes I remember all of these
1: They're burned into the memory, aren't they?
0: Yeah, it burns into the memory like a, a frisbee into your hand after 20,000 volts have passed through it.
1: When I was at uh, junior school in the early 90s, we went on a special safety course at uh, Rushmore Arena in North East Hampshire, uh, my class and several other classes, and um, we were effectively you know, put into various situations. It's like it was like, um, It was like a cross between a public information film and live action role play. Because we go into these situations like, oh, there's that there's a man loading bin bags into the back of his car, and he and he's got know he's got one arm in a sling, and he asks the children to help him, and obviously it's a whole lesson in stranger danger, and the children are supposed to say no, 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 it's all right, we um we we can't spy, and then I we'll say, all right, okay, well done, that's exactly what you're supposed to do, uh, except my teacher <laughs> said, oh yes, of course I can help. Oh, let me help you there forgetting that this is all probably going to be staged. And the man said, well, now you've <laughs> you've, you've been kidnapped, so you, you've you lost. That was not the last time my teacher died that day, because she, there was also a dummy who had uh, been poking into the back of his television with a screwdriver and electrocuted himself. And we said, right, yeah, you've got to help this person. So my teacher immediately grabbed the man's arm and I said, okay, you've now you've now died of being electrocuted. (laughs) The thing you were supposed to do was pick up the plastic brush that was on the table and use that to pull him away from the television because plastic doesn't conduct electricity and that will break the circuit because that's safe. So it was a great day of, you know, watching my teacher repeatedly demonstrate that she doesn't have the intellectual capacity of a (laughs) nine-year-old.
0: Now you you're much, much younger than me. Do you remember these classic seventies covered? They were still cars? running them when well, I they, was little. Does that include Apaches? No. Or and I think that...
1: the main I think the main reason is Apaches tended only to be run in areas that were much more rural. Right. So whereabouts was it where you were growing up where you saw this?
0: Hmm. Um Dover and Kent, we have that See, plenty That's plenty of
1: farms that's, around. That's that's countryside, whereas I was living in, in northeast Hampshire, western Surrey, which is much more suburban. How do you and know was, I
0: saw it? Did I? Have I? It might I have been shown that? in a
1: school, hmm. and rather than on television. Um, I mean, I, we were sort of just on the boundary of the the Thames LWT region, so it's unlikely it would have been shown to a London audience, for example, yeah. because you know there There aren't any farms
0: no uh yeah, so this has become notorious, hasn't it this film it seems I'm just wondering of it's become a talking point over the decades that have followed, and I'm just wondering how to what extent it's been talked about by people who did see it and to what extent it's just word of mouth and people pretending they saw it like they pretended they saw the sex pistols at the one hundred club well it's, I... it's on those those um themed evenings on Channel 4. I think think the first time I saw a clip of it since 1977 was on an evening of public information films where there were lots of talking heads saying yeah, I remember this, it was horrible, it was so frightening. I just wondered how many of these people were making had actually seen it for the first time a minute earlier when the researchers showed it to them on an iPad.
1: Oh, almost certainly. Um, But I I was aware of its reputation for many years and then I've, I found a copy on YouTube. I think it was probably split into three pieces. Mm. And it was quite ropey quality. Uh, much as the first time I watched uh, La Cabina was a, a ropey YouTube copy, although there's a nice official one now. Um, but I, I was aware of its reputation. I'd heard, you know heard, looked through websites, of you know, classic British PIFs. And I watched it, and I felt it lived up to its reputation. But also that it's a really unusually stylish piece of filmmaking in its own right it is isn't it um the way it uses this kind of odd floating timeline and it jumps between these these parallel elements that then come together at the end yeah um it's directed by john mckenzie who listen this, this folds back into a previous uh, one of the previous films was the director of the long good friday ah which we, he would make 2 years later the director of photography was Phil Mayhew, who would go on to be uh, director of photography on two James Bond films. Right. Well, that explains why it looks unusually stylish. <laughs> hmm. Um, as I say, produced by the Central Office of Information. The structure of the story is that it's about a group of children playing cowboys and Indians on an English country farm, uh, treating the, the local farmers a fort. And we are introduced to them in voiceover by the lead boy, uh, named Danny, and each of the children gets uh, uh, you know, a couple of lines about what they're like. Apart from the last two, Tom and Robert, <laughs> who have no apparently have no distinguishing features of any kind. No.
0: He he, he crit- the narrator criticises one of the other boys for wearing a red headband, which is stupid because in the patch he wouldn't have done that. And then one of the one of the last two has a red one as well, but he
1: doesn't even bother to doesn't even bother to criticise him for the same reason. So they, because... run, they run down the hillside towards the farm, yelling and whooping, and then we cut away to a house, presumably somewhere nearby, where some kind of dinner party is being prepared, which Danny also talks about in voiceover, particularly that they're serving veal and ham pie, which he's very keen on. So they're running around the farm, and it's, it's very much a child's eye view of village life. There aren't any adults around for most of the time. Um, now I can imagine that during an ordinary day there wouldn't necessarily be many farm workers in the actual farm, they're going to be out in the fields, they're going to be in other outbuildings they're not just going to be clustered in the middle, but it 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 does feel like this strange this world where there's no responsible figure there's no one there's there's no authority figure who's going to take charge to whom the children can defer they're lost there on their own, and anything that happens is going to be their fault because they have no one else to help them.
0: It's, I mean, there are occasional adults who have, just need to be there to drive bits of farm machinery. Mm. And it it's just struck me. i mean, of course, for all that we think this is a classic <laughs> example of the horror genre, they weren't setting out to make a horror film. And if you, it just struck me that if you had, didn't see the adults' faces, that would add to the sent to that sense if they could somehow have shot it so that um
1: well they're always sort of in the distance the the ones on the farm are always sort of far away and in the distance at the party they're more clearly yeah uh, observed um but there's a there's a tractor passing by so the the indians are going to ambush it The farmer opens the gate into the farmyard and drives in and is pursued by the kids uh as he's pulling his trailer one of the children jumps up onto the trailer with his little toy rifle and is shooting at him from behind a hay bale. And the driver joins in and he's uh, reaching behind his shoulder, uh, pointing his fingers and going bang bang. And then the truck, uh, the tractor hits a bump and the boy falls off the trailer, goes under the wheels and we don't see him die, but we do see blood on his broken toy rifle. And all the other children go quiet. And then we cut to a corridor in a school where someone walks out out of the room towards the the row of pegs where people hang up their coats and there's an empty peg and they just peel off the label under <coughs> the peg good god back at the party dad's polishing his shoes and mum's putting on a nice blouse while the kids are playing and also it's a nice uh, nod to Pop culture at the time. The kids talk about Swap Shop. Yes, which um, must
0: have been fairly new. This, this is seventy-seven, isn't it? Yes,
1: yeah, so this was yeah, it's been two so, or three years old.
0: No, no, I think it, I, I thought it started seventy-six, but so it's fairly new. But it must, I would have made a big impact. Mm. <laughs> Their dialogue is pretty good all the way through. It's very natural. It is, and, and complement of other
1: performances. The uh, the, di- the script is by Neville Smith. Um, who wrote a number of television plays. But he's better known as an actor, uh, and perhaps better known to you I and some of the listeners, for one particular role, again, connecting back to La Cabina, playing Son in the first episode of the Doctor Who serial, The Reign of Terror, in which people are taken off to be executed on a tumbrel. <laughs> so the kids decide they're going to play... Um, uh, it's it's a variation on hide-and-seek that I'm not really familiar with. It's sort of a cross between hide-and-seek hide and, and kick-the-can. And Sharon is annoyed by being caught, but is told, you know, that's just how how you have to play the game. And Danny sees her hiding in the hay. And there's very energetic camera work. You know, there's, there's some quite fast cutting. I think there's some handheld work in there as well. It feels very surprisingly fast-paced. It's the most exciting game of hide-and-seek I've seen in some time. Um, However, Tom has decided to hide somewhere around the farm's slurry pit and he's climbing on the fence around the outside, but it's slippery. He falls into the slurry, calls for help, but soon his head disappears under the surface.
0: Yes. This is absolutely horrifying, Jeremy. It is, I, but... It, I only it, just got over it. It's, not, it's
1: not even the most horrifying part of this film yet. Well, because tell you, it, it gets
0: worse. It might, it might well do. I'm gonna, I remember this from the time. Um, I'm assuming it was 1977. The strangest thing about my memory of it is... Because I, I remember... Before, for decades before... People gossiping about old children's television on the internet was a thing... I to this memory and was trying to find anybody else who'd been haunted by it and failing. I, I'll i never know if this is true, but I, my memory is that I got up early Christmas morning, December 25th, Christmas morning, probably 1977, and turned the TV on, ready to watch some entertaining kids' programmes before my parents got up, and that this was the first thing that was on, presumably an unannounced addition to the schedule. And I had to sit through this. And I was particularly haunted by Tom, was it? Yes. Disappearing into the the slurry. And it kind of ruined my Christmas day. This is my (laughs) memory. I think it's virtually impossible to find out if this really was Christmas day or if I'm just getting two memories mixed up. But that is what has burned into my head. I didn't see it again for 40 years or so. And... um, while the images was the angles were slightly different from what i remembered the atmosphere is surprisingly similar the the naturalism of the kids scooting about the farm enjoying themselves and then this rather unpleasant second death i don't really remember any of the film after this i was probably too <laughs> i don't know if i turned it off and went back to bed I, I can't but this is this is the one that got me and watching it now i'm equally worried by how they shot it. They appear to have actually killed a child in the course of making this film, but um, no doubt there are some special effects at play. But I'm not sure.
1: Well, we, we do know from the start that Tom has no real distinguishing characteristics, so he could have just <laughs> been substituted for another boy and then sent back home again. <laughs> um, but yes, it is... The, the, the tone of the whole film is just depressingly realistic, because the... the 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 writing is deliberately fantastical with the odd floating mm. timeline and the the kind of dreamlike tone but the way the violence is portrayed is so totally unvarnished totally real as as graphic as they think they can get away with it's it's really shocking i think and as i say we haven't even got to the part that i thought was the most disturbing well you're
0: not um, six. Which we'll see if that has any bearing on it. Um, there so, lots uh, of people there are lots of people drowning in nineteen seventy seven. I remember that the Doctor Who, Tom Baker, um, appears to drown in a silo in a big silo of sand in the Robots of Death. Um Yes. Which is around the same sort of time. That and actually that stuck, that stuck in my mind.
1: A few stories earlier in the Deadly Assassin he appears to actually drown when being held underwater. Mm. Um, which got uh, the BBC into a lot of trouble with Mary Whitehouse.
0: Ah, it's a wonder I'm still sane.
1: Mm. So we, we then have the, the consequence scene of uh, a, class, a school classroom in playtime with an empty desk and one of the teachers comes in and opens it and takes out an action man while at the party they're now laying the table and Danny again in voiceover says oh adult parties are so boring they just stand around eating and drinking and there aren't even any cakes or presents
0: dramatic irony there
1: hmm. i wonder <laughs> and this the the, the, the next part i think gives it's almost like it's 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 starting to lean a little against the fourth wall where some of the children are now watching a railway uh, railway trains going by and i think are they, is this going to turn into another railway public information film? Like the finishing line or the one with the, the boy whose foot gets run over and you'll see a shoe with a bit of foot coming out of it?
0: Yeah, I was going to mention that. There's it's one all... of these other films where um, because the the cutaway, the way that they dramatized the fact that these children are dead by cutting to their their possessions being cleared away into a box or as you say the sticker being peeled off, That that's a that's a common trope of these films, isn't it? One of the others has, has some shoes hanging forlornly on a hook at school, I think yes. is that the is that one of the railway ones
1: um possibly yes, because they can't run anymore because they had their feet run over
0: is that is that it yeah I'm not going to go and check that one, jeremy no.
1: <laughs> it's again they there is they always try to push the the violence and the gore as much as they can, but they would never cross that line. They still have to remember. We are supposed to show this to children. Or we are supposed to show this during daytime television. This can't go over the line. But there's another film that the COI made called The Finishing Line, which is apparently too brutal and too graphic to show. And I've seen it. And it's about um, a boy imagining a sports day event based around a railway. The final event of which is a race through a tunnel with a whole crowd of, of children running into the tunnel and then there's a gap after the last child goes in and then a train goes after them and then you see the children coming out at the other end and they're injured they you know there's blood uh, on them yes yeah and then you have an adult going up to them and very um blandly just asking his name and then writing his name down on the list or ticking him off and like on like on a school sports day just very unemotionally making notes of who, who's won and that kind of thing. And it ends with the ch- the dead children being laid down on the railway line like sleepers. And there's this huge row of 60 or 70 children. And clearly the COI saw that and thought, no! <laughs> now that that might be an extreme example, but it does make,
0: it does make me think of my uh, main point, which is to what extent the... Um... I wonder what guidelines the filmmakers were given and to what extent that they are primarily tr- thinking from the point of view of getting the message across to children in a way that will hammer the point home and they will walk away from this having learned something, having mm-hmm. learned what not to do. And to what extent they're just indulging themselves as filmmakers, trying to make something the film in the most interesting way. And of course there's no reason why they can't combine those two interests, but sometimes you get the feeling they're getting a bit carried away with themselves and enjoying the job of it too much
1: well i think uh, like like in apaches that tends to be funneled into f- portraying things in an interesting artistic or stylistic way rather than pushing the violence and gore hmm. because i think they're aware they don't want to they don't want to make this too glamorous they don't want to make it too uh too much like a movie they have to keep it believable they have to keep it down to earth they have to keep it realistic
0: i think and it if... does push it as far as it can go and my feeling based on nothing but very old memories, is that they do get away with slightly more than, say, the BBC or ITV would if this was just a drama they were making. I don't know. If... I can't back that up. It's just a feeling that yeah, maybe I they think... wouldn't have had to go through the same vetting w- processes.
1: Because these these films would not necessarily be broadcast, they would be shown as in school as, as film strips. And because they're produced by a government office rather than by... A broadcaster that's licensed by the government, so I think it, it gives them more leeway that anything anything that's in the film automatically has educational value
0: mm.
1: that that yeah this is this is all geared towards it's not it's unlike the BBC nothing in here is meant to ed- entertain it's all to educate and if it's using certain tropes as a way of gaining the audience's attention and keeping their focus on what's happening. And scaring the shit out of them as long as they're being educated into not running around on railway lines or playing around in farms or breaking into electricity substations then maybe anything goes the ends justify the means yeah um, they uh, they switch sides in the game and they now decide that they're going to be the cowboys defending the fort and Sharon says oh I th- I thought that's I thought we were playing Indians and Danny replies, that is because you are thick
0: (laughs) I I laughed at that
1: yeah, that that is quite funny, and also the way he says it, very business like Um, so they have a a shootout at the uh, at the the fort and uh, the forklift driver who's going by plays along and everyone ends up being killed, even Sharon Um, with the Apaches having taken over. So they go looking around the outbuilding to celebrate their victory over General Custer and his men and they decide they're going to drink fire water. They find a bottle of something and pour it into a mug. But um, one of them says that it smells funny and they probably shouldn't drink it. Um, So they say, "Oh, oh, we'll just mime it. Anyway, poison would look bad which is a weird thing to think um i mean everyone knows everyone's everyone's familiar with the simpsons short film lead paint delicious but deadly <laughs> so they all mime drinking some apart from susan who actually yeah. who forgets she gets carried some, away yeah but she immediately spits it out and then later as it's getting dark they're going home but she's she's got a stomach pain and uh, she's got a bit of a cough and There's a very worrying looking mark on her shirt where she spilled some. And then we have the worst thing I've had to watch (laughs) as part of this podcast. In the six years I've been doing this podcast, this is the worst thing. And it's just a shot of Sharon's house at night and you just hear her screaming as Mm. one of the lights comes on and her parents come to see her. And it just cuts abruptly from that to drawers and dressing table being cleared and emptied. It's, it's just horrible. I wonder why I don't remember that. The thing is, that's, that's one that really stuck with me when I watched it this time. I think before it was the slurry pit. Yeah. But for some reason, just that image of, you whatever's happening in that house, whatever, yeah. I'm just wondering whatever, if what whatever it is that she's going through is too horrible to show. We can only show you the outside of the house.
0: I think below a certain age, that's too subtle, and you wouldn't quite think of it. You, you wouldn't think through the consequences.
1: Hmm. The um, the party preparations continue, and Danny says that she likes it when adults drink because they get all funny, <laughs> and they're and they're nice to him.
0: Give him money. I don't remember that. I don't remember drunk adults sharing me with gifts, but.
1: Well. Oh, I see. Yeah, because I think, how many funerals did you go to? But, you know, that wouldn't be a funeral, though. That would be, like, a fun party. (laughs) How many adult parties were you invited to as a young child, anyway? (laughs) Oh, crikey. Um... But, by the way, I mean, usually in in my house, I'd, you know, put on a, a smart shirt or something. Introduce myself to all the, the guests, and then after about ten minutes, I'd be sent upstairs. Yes, this rings and, a bell. And up,
0: mostly, adults having fun was just a noise you could hear through the floorboards.
1: Yeah, and I end up. Sorry, watching, that, sounds,
0: that sounds rude than it, it was supposed to.
1: I'd end up watching, you know, you bet and casualty, and occasionally my mother would bring me leftovers between courses. <laughs> um, the few remaining children are now playing Starsky and Hutch again, very contemporary. Um, and they're running around, and I and <laughs> like the joke that they can't remember which one's Starsky and which one's Hutch. And I think at one point they decide that both they're both Starsky. Um, and at one point one of them says, oh, I'm getting too old for this, caper. So that even prefigures... <laughs> you know, this is where cliches come from. And one of them shelters behind um, a large metal gate that's leaning against the wall. But um, as he runs out, the other boy doesn't get out of the way fast enough, and the gate lands on his head. And you just see a little trickle of blood coming out of his ear, as latecomers turn up at the party where everyone is now dressed in black. So now there are only two boys remaining. And Danny says that as chief, he has to scout the land to find a way for his tribe to survive. And as he heads off, he actually runs through a graveyard. And there's a cut as he jumps over the fence to a tractor. Yes. As as some men are working on a a cut road going up a hillside. And uh, it gets off and puts the brake on. And as Danny says in voiceover, as long as one Apache remains, our tribe will survive. So Danny climbs on the tractor and pretends that he's driving, but he hits the brake... And the tractor, freewheels down the hill, goes over the side and crashes. And then we cut to a child's bedroom where a woman is sitting by the window. And a man comes in and says, they're ready now. And they get up and go downstairs. And we cut to a funeral where the last remaining boy is watching by the graveside. And we see a plaque on the lid of the coffin. Daniel Edward Perry died in 1977 aged 11 years and as the family sits at their party the funeral wake we find we hear the last bit of voiceover from Danny it's, I wish I was there honest and the film has no end credits, instead we get a roll of statistics of children who have died in accidents on farmland in the preceding few years yeah.
0: So in case you were wondering why they thought it was such a Problem that it needed, all this money and expertise thrown at it. It looks like an epidemic. Yeah. I sincerely hope it had the desired effect.
1: As I and said, then, you sometimes you just need to scare the little bastards. And the the, the our point of the film was just to scare them into behaving. And that seems to be the COI's raison d'etre, almost, just to, to frighten people into now no, behaving responsibly.
0: I've no idea if it, is the, if it is the best way. I was just thinking about this earlier and I think I can, I can entirely understand that they would have thought the didactic approach, putting up a, a, a caption with a stentorian voice saying, do not do this, children. Don't do X, Y and Z. is not the way because they'll just ignore you and that you need to actually get some, do something more visceral. Now, I think, for me, I was perfectly happy to obey rules. I was a, yeah, one of those nasty little children who's who will do, you know, do what adults tell them. So I I was perfectly happy with the more simplistic approach. And things like this, I think I was too young to understand the message it was trying to put across. I just watched it, I think, on that morning in 1977, as if it was a rather unusually disturbing drama. But then again, I never did sit around on a farmyard, so perhaps at some deep level it did get through to me.
1: Well, I... As, as part of my background research, I actually showed this film to my mother, who grew up on a farm hmm. uh, in the 1940s. And um, she noted that there were a, a number of parts that didn't really apply to her because of you no know, changes in mechanism, that kind of thing. And she obviously knew not to drink the stuff that's in the, the barn because it's obviously dangerous. But she used to drive a tractor when she was little. She learned to drive a car by driving a tractor, and that was perfectly normal. And I she,
0: suppose. Yeah.
1: There would always, be, you know, there would be you know one of the farmhands or her father around supervising, but she would you know drive the tractor at low speed just around the farm you know, to help out. And that I think that's the difference with this film is there is no, there's no parental figure. The whole story is told through the children. And I think that's what helps it be so effective that you don't have an adult standing there wagging your finger. You're seeing the effect of this on children like you in this, now, in, in this world where there is no safety net.
0: Now, this strange, the, surreal effect is created by what what you call the, the parallel timelines. The fact that we're not apparently... We, we can't literally just be watching one or two days... In the course of these children's lives, because I mean, from the first death onwards, it becomes immediately apparent they see the first child, boy go under the wheels of the tractor and then they carry on playing. So I'm just wondering why they chose to tell it in that way. It's, it's five. It looks like a continuous story, but it's, it can't be. It must just be five, I five I possible
1: it's it's like a dream i don't think it could really be rationalized yeah. because they've tried to sort of format into a way that that gets the message across that they want to communicate regardless of
0: yeah how but much a,
1: sense it makes as a as a, a as a real world story
0: it's a deliberate choice i mean it's probably maybe it's because they know they're going to end with a voiceover from one of the dead children so it's they want to give it that otherworldly feel mm. early on but there was a voice in the back of my mind trying to work out how you could tell the story in a more in a realistic way. I mean, if if they didn't see, if each of the deaths happened out of sight of the remaining children, then you could <laughs> somehow tell this story in a more straightforward way.
1: But then you you would have Agatha Ag- Christie style. You'd have the children wondering though where their friends are disappearing to, and how there's yeah. this, you know, this succession of child bodies littering this farm. I think that would Apparently exaggerate the
0: fact that you're telling a horror story and it would change the. It would, it, yes, you say it would change their behaviour and the only way you can get them to carry on behaving in a naturalistic way is to make, perversely, make this, the telling of the story non naturalistic. And the only other thing you could do is have it as five alternative um, stories where the same child dies the same way each time. But then that would be a bit like Kenny and South Park. So,
1: well, that was done with one, with uh, another notable uh, uh, PIF called um, Building Sites Bite, uh, which was about the dangers of of messing around on building sites. And there were two children watching who could then roll back time mm. to let to let that child have another go at whatever it was that killed them and uh, make you know, teach them to to choose to choose wisely. As it were, <laughs> and um, not not play with the big machinery or, or drink from the wrong cup, or um, or what have you.
0: I mean that would I mean that would seem like a more humane and obvious to me way of of creating a public information film for children without actually terrifying them. Give them the scare, but then say it's all right. It's not real. You can change things. That he doesn't die really if he just does if he just uses his brain. Mm. But here, there's no such comfort, is there?
1: No. As I said, it's a world with no safety net. You have to know this. You have to be safe. Because you can't assume that there will be something there that will protect you. You have to be responsible for your own actions. Hmm. And on that note... (laughs) On that note, uh, let's end with... Uh, a right good laugh, with Laurel and Hardy in *Men of War* from 1929. The oldest film I've covered in the podcast.
0: Oh. Um, while well, it's a bit, while well, it's a bit creaky technically, it's by no means the <laughs> the worst film I've ever talkie I've ever seen.
1: It's only their third sound film, which is, I think, very impressive given how dialogue-based it is. Certainly the first half is very much based around dialogue, I think, and misunderstandings. And it's only in the second half of the film where it becomes much more visual and more slapstick. And it has people hitting each other with cushions or falling in the lake. Or both. And at this point in their career, they were, they were now stars. They were major figures. And also, I think, I think they were, they were the first sort of major comedy act to transfer into sound because Harold Lloyd, I think, eventually transitioned into sound. Keaton never really did. Chaplin never really... He didn't he, want to, did he? He, he didn't want he, to, and he he held off as long as he could, and it's really only with The Great Dictator. And even then, the point is that The Tramp doesn't... Speak and it 's only at the very end of the great dictator when the tramp finally speaks and delivers that amazing speech about peace and universal brotherhood and how great Marxism is um, cause it's, yeah, it's Marxism is the you know it's, it's the lifeblood of the world i'm all, <laughs> all for it as this podcast is rapidly dropped by many sponsors um, but it's yeah it's the, the, the tramp only speaks when he has something really worthwhile to say. Whereas but somebody
0: Lauren... has spotted that laurel hardy films can be enhanced by the judicious addition of some verbal gags alongside
1: well, the visual yeah i mean it helped that they have very they have they have the right sort of speaking voices oliver hardy's voice sounds like how he looks Hmm. he has that be- that beautiful georgia accent wonderful speaking voice and he was a uh, an experienced singer so he had a, a trained voice as well Whereas Stan Laurel, having grown up in um, Lancashire, but lived in California for many years, had this odd-sounding light mid-Atlantic accent, which again just seemed to fit his his natural appearance.
0: In terms of the particular register he's taught of speaking in and the performance he gives, do you think he had to? Do we know that he had to work at that voice to get? Because he's, he's not just using his own voice the way that Hard, Oliver Hardy is, is he? But he's, th- he's clearly thought about this and come up with something that perfectly matches what you would imagine the character of Stan Laurel to sound like.
1: It's it's partially in his diction, but it's I think he 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 raises the register of his voice slightly. I think his natural voice was a little deeper. Um. But it's he he took such care with creating the characters of Stan and Ollie. I yes, I I think there is a lot of thought gone into how they're going to speak. But then the funny thing is um, Stan Laurel, the the reason why it's Laurel and Hardy and not Hardy and Laurel is Stan Laurel wasn't just an actor. He was a writer. He was a director. He was the creative lead. Hmm. And he had largely creative control over virtually all their films. Oliver Hardy was an actor and he was employed as an actor and he was perfectly happy with this very unequal distribution of work but also that Stan Laurel was paid a lot more and was billed first and that seemed totally fine. Hardy would often contribute ideas um, uh, in the in the writing and bits of business in the filming. One of their later shorts, Perfect Day, in which Stan and Ollie and their wives and Uncle Edgar go through these endless preparations before setting off for a picnic and get into arguments with their neighbours and get in the tit-for-tat battle and, and there's all kinds of little bits of business. All of that stem from an idea by Oliver Hardy from watching his neighbours go through the exact same thing <laughs> Okay, he's endless you know, re- packing and repacking the car and talking to people next door and then, and then the thing won't stun, all of this thing and he just sub- said it to Stan Laurel, just to offer this idea and I said this is fantastic, let's run with it
0: So why did you pick this one?
1: Men of Men War, War I think is one of their lesser known shorts um, it doesn't have the the indelible visual images I think that you know, the music box has of Stan and Ollie dragging the the piano up the hill in a crate, or Stan and Ollie playing their own children or their own wives, or um, in way out west where they you know that has a very specific setting of them being in the old west and singing Trail of the Lonesome Pine." It doesn't have any of those particular indelible images but it just has this very strong succession of gags, such that I laughed more watching this in preparing for the podcast and making notes than I have watching most feature-length comedies. <laughs> and this film is less than 20 minutes long. It's, uh, you know, as, as is usually the case with a, with a Laurel and Hardy film, particularly with their shorts... It has very thin plot. It's about, <laughs> it's it's about two sailors on shore leave, go to the park, pick up a couple of girls, buy them a couple of drinks, go uh, on a boating lake, get into a fight. That's the whole movie. But we have these, this succession of sequences and the succession of gags that I think. Must have been totally fresh and totally original at the time. Sound pictures were only two years old, and we had these these detailed exchanges of dialogue. Early on, where um, a washerwoman walking a washerwoman walking through the middle of a park has dropped an item of laundry, which it turns out is a pair of women's underthings.
0: Yep, yeah, very pre-code.
1: And Stan and Ollie pick it up, and they think that a. Young woman nearby, who's talking about having lost her pair of gloves, is talking about these, and she says, "Oh well, oh, oh well, dear lady, uh, can you give us a description of the uh, the garment in question?" Says, "Oh well, it um, it buttons up the side, and they're very, (sighs) and they're very easy to pull on. Um, You can imagine how I feel. What with the warm (laughs) weather today. (laughs) See, you're laughing." this gag is nearly a hundred years old and it's still hilarious. And you cut from her you know, giving these, this perfectly reasonable description and then you cut back to Stan and Ollie kind of looking at each other thinking, hmm. It's sharing this very uneasy look. Um, and even, be- even before that you have the bizarre gag of them holding up this pair of underpants and a cyclist going by <laughs> and saying ah, naughty, naughty. And because he's looking at them, and not looking where he's going, he just goes straight into the lake. <laughs> these, I mean, these are these are old jokes, but they're still hilarious. Because it's, sort of, it's, it's in the performance, it's in the timing, very simple direction, a lot of it in wide shots.
0: Yeah. I sort of grew up being slightly unimpressed with that sort of slapstick, people falling in rivers, because there's so much of it in television in my childhood, whether it be Children's TV or um, or late or sitcoms, often not very well done, and I could never quite see what the the point was. But it was only when I saw where the, what they were trying to ape, the originals, where they did did it properly. And as you say, it's so simple, but um, it's difficult to put your finger on just why sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't.
1: I think uh, Laurel worked incredibly hard on gags on on timing. Uh, he effectively told the director what to do. So it was all... It's it's a matter of t- a lot of tiny details all coming together. The timing has to be just right. The delivery has to be just right. The way Stan and Ollie would sort of look at each other has to be exactly right. And the, the timing of shots and the timing of the editing. Yeah. It's it's all such fine-tuning.
0: And the tone it has to happen to the right, the right things to the right people for the right reasons. I mean, if Stan you get any of those elements wrong, then then... Visual comedy can fall completely flat, can't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, Stan and Ollie find a pair of underpants. They don't have any salacious thoughts of any kind. Yeah. Ollie says, oh, oh, they fall down. It's like, oh, a pair of underpants. But when they're trying to return them to the lady, they're very gentlemanly and very polite. And they're trying to handle it with a degree of delicacy. And she says, oh, this, they've probably got dirty. I'll have to clean them with gasoline. And again, <laughs> what? <laughs> and then suddenly, a police officer enters the scene and says, Ah, oh, madam, I believe you dropped these gloves just now. <laughs> so Which Stan and Harley then realise, um, Whose underpants are we walking around with? So we sort of emboldened by the conversation. Um, they ask the ladies for uh, if they'd like to go for a soda. And the other lady says, Oh, I'd love to. I just love soldiers! (laughs) To which Ollie pulls a face, points to Stan and says, Meet the Colonel. And as they set off, I think Stan hands Ollie the underpants and then Ollie looks at them and just throws them into the lake. At the soda jerk stand, um, Stan checks his pockets for money as they get their order together. But it turns out that he only has 15 cents which means they only have enough for three drinks between them. So Stan and Ollie come up with a strategy where Stan will decline to have a drink. So Ollie says, right, So ladies, points to the first one, soda. Points to the second one, soda. Points to himself, I'll have a soda. And and Stanley, what will you have? Stanley points to himself, smiles and says, soda. (laughs) So we're getting this visual-verbal and conceptual humor kind of all together because you have Oliver Hardy's very elaborate gestures as he points to each of them in turn which is just funny to watch you have the verbal gag of, of, of the punchline of stand-up understanding but also this conceptual humor of them trying to save face and trying to be um you know the sophisticated gentleman about town and impress these ladies when they have 15 cents between them to show them a good time um we also see in this first scene as the as the soda jerk himself because no better d- job description is there uh james finlayson yes this was finlayson's first sound film right had um, he been in a, a, had he been
0: in Lauren hardy silence before yep
1: he he'd done a bunch yeah. of silence with them in the past and he was one of the stock players at the Howl Roach studio but this was his first appearance in sound film and therefore it's the first time he does his one eyed take, where he does the 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 do. Yep. Which would then be appropriated so, uh, by Dan Castellaneta and sped up to become dough.
0: Right. I, I spotted the, I spotted the dough, and I hadn't quite appreciated that was the very first
1: one. Wow! This, what a marathon! This, this is the very first appearance of that. This is where it all came from.
0: And of course. Lots of general double and double takes uh, double, <laughs> to follow. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. It, it harks back to uh, his and Laurel's background in performing on stage. Um, Oliver Hardy started out um, singing in, in cinemas to silent films and to slides, and working as a projectionist. But he set out for Hollywood because he would watch silent films, and he was very annoyed at how bad the acting was. And he was convinced that he, despite lack, his lack of acting training, could do better. So he just, with the typical self-confidence of a man with no background or training whatsoever, uh, turned up in Hollywood and started working as a comedy actor. And noticeably, I've seen some of his his earliest work. He's very broad. <laughs> he's He's really not very good as an actor in his earlier film. And then once it was refined... And he got you know practised and better at it, and then once he was partnered with Stan Laurel and really had the character of Ollie to inhabit um then he really sort of then his performance has become really great, something that Stan Laurel had been uh, refining over decades in music hall and vaudeville, one other so, thing that...
0: Oh, sorry are we are we still in the soda gag by the way.
1: We're still at the soda gag, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, another thing that keeps that that I really like about Lauren Hardy is it's about adults acting like children. That Stan and Ollie are these kind of overgrown children, at large in the adult world and trying to pass for adults, like they're going out wearing their sailor suits, hmm. uh, like little children do. And and going and drinking a soda. <laughs> I mean, th- I mean. in fairness, this was during Prohibition. And, in fact, Prohibition would come back as a recurring gag in some of their later films, um, like um, Blotto, where they sneak out to a nightclub with a bottle of booze, um, illegal at the time, of course, except uh, not knowing that Ollie's wife has replaced it with a bottle of cold tea. So they proceed to get absolutely b- plastered on cold tea, not realizing there's no alcohol in it. <laughs> but again, it's it's adults acting like children of you know, sneaking away from the grown-ups and going out to a party and having a good time. Ollie finally, after two more attempts at the the soda routine, Ollie, hmm. Ollie, Ollie loses his temper with Stan and says, oh know, no, it's another one. Just just one more." This is Stan pulls him aside and says, "Why do you keep saying you're going to have soda?" he says, "Why do you keep asking me?" says, when I ask you, say you don't want anything. So they go through it again. Like Soda, soda, I'll have a soda. And Stanley, what will you have? He says, oh, I won't have anything, thank you, Ollie. And one of the girls says, oh, General, are you sure? And Stan says, oh, all right, I'll have a banana split. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to stop the tape because I was laughing so much at that.
0: (laughs) It was very good. Because we know from the comedy rule of three that it's going to um, something different is going to happen this time, so that's the perfect uh, that's the perfect resolution for that <laughs> gag. He gets it right and then immediately t- <laughs> makes it even worse than it was before.
1: So- I um
0: this I I'm a sucker for this that kind of gag. I I watched coincidentally last weekend. I watched uh, the Marx Brothers at the circus for the first time. Oh yes, which is not one of their best, but it was. But, on, but with that in mind, it was better than I was expecting. And there's an extended sequence there where, <laughs> where for reasons well, I won't go into, Groucho a characters offering them cigars and Groucho made it clear that they must refuse. And Chico keeps saying, yes, please, I'll have one. And it goes on way beyond the rule of three. Every time, Because um, I think the Marx Brothers often did um, break some of these rules. Uh, they were masters of the idea that you could repeat a gag until breaking point and possibly even slightly further. But it's exactly the same thing. We just keep waiting for him to say no, and he says yes.
1: So the, the, there's a, a scuffle between Stan and Ollie involving shin-kicking and eye-poking. And, <laughs> and eventually Ollie just says, we'll have three sodas. As is, just says to Stan that they'll split one. So they order three, one in cherry, one in chocolate, and one in sassafras, mm. which, like, sarsaparilla is like a kind of North American root, like root beer. Mm-hmm. Stan says he doesn't like sassafras. No, he doesn't like Frassasass. Why am I still laughing? But um, uh, Stan gets his to drink his half first, and he winds up drinking the whole glass. And we then have this really nice drawn-out scene where Ollie is totally incredulous that Stan could have done this. And he's he's not angry with him. He's just disappointed. He says, do you know, do you know what you've done and Stan nods very sadly. He says, well, why did you do it then? He says, I couldn't help it. Well, why not? My half was on the bottom. <laughs> Which is that, is that fantastic child logic.
0: It's very interesting. That's another joke that I could see working for the Marx Brothers. But because of the... When you give it to people with different characters, it, it plays completely differently. It's drawn out here... If the Marx Brothers did that, then it would be over with in ten seconds. It would just be a gag, and um, it would be a wisecrack, and they'd move on. Whereas here, because of the two characters involved, there's pathos. They get wrung out of that situation as well, even though it's just the same logical misapplication of logic joke underpinning it.
1: Mm. So uh, they finally get the check for the drinks, and it's thirty cents. So Oliver says that... (laughs) Ollie says he'll let Stan pay. So Stan fumbles through his pockets, turns to Ollie, but Ollie's turned his back on him. And in desperation, Stan puts one of his coins into the the one-armed bandit next to them. There's a brief pause. And then it comes up with the jackpot. (laughs) Which is... (laughs) They just couldn't think of a way out of the sea. (laughs) Quite. It's interesting...
0: It's very good natured of them to give them a win, although obviously it's only a temporary respite from their troubles.
1: Well, it then opens up the rest of the movie because we cut then to the movie, the next, the remaining ten minutes <laughs> of the movie. It then cut to the the boating lake where they now, having won the jackpot, they can afford to take the girls out on a little boating trip. So they're loaded up the boat with the supplies, and uh, Finlayson says, "Okay, well, you know, you've got a you've got an hour," and Ollie says, "Ah, okay, Grandpa." Slaps him on the chest, and stands sitting in the back of the boat with you know an an arm around each of the girls, and the boat wobbles wobbling as Ollie gets aboard, and there's lots of business with them swapping places and hauling the the oars over each other's heads and trying not to smash each other in the head, and eventually they start rowing, but they contrive it so that the boat just goes in a circle. They're yes. sitting on opposite sides, but one of them's rowing forwards, and other's rowing backwards. Yeah, every
0: different permutation of, of of oars, which would result in it just turning on the spot.
1: Yeah. And eventually they manage to um, collide with another canoe. Play, the canoe is being played by another regular uh, Hal Roach player, Charlie Hall, who would um, appear in many of their films. And this immediately starts turning into the classic tit-for-tat fight with starts with them splashing each other and then hitting each other with the cushion and eventually um, Charlie grabs the oar, snaps it so Ollie just pushes him in the lake and as Stan flails around, Ollie flings a cushion as well as more and more people get involved more and more boats draw up people being hit with cushions, people being splashed, people being pushed in. Um, Finlayson tries... Mul- there's a multiple pile-up of, um,
0: of boats in-, elsewhere in the Lake, isn't there, which made me think of the police cars at the end of...
1: Uh, the Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers, yeah. <laughs> Finlayson tries to keep order from the mainland and yells and screams and does you know, multiple takes of grabbing his hair and popping his eyes and going, oh! All I could think of was
0: how they'd filmed that. Just keep the camera rolling and while he does a thousand different (laughs) permutations at double takes and then try and make some sense of it in the editing room.
1: Uh, More and more people fall in and then try and climb into Stan and Ollie's boat and finally uh, uh, the cop from earlier appears and uh, Finlayson and the cop both try and get into the boat. They immediately... I think they managed to set one foot each in the boat, lose balance, and immediately fall in the water, and then climb back in, and eventually just the boat is so overloaded that it just sinks, and we just cut to, the, cut to the end. It's a nice ending,
0: because our main characters, and indeed everyone who's climbed aboard theirs for whatever reason, not for rescue, but just to continue this fight, they don't fall in, it just descends vertically, doesn't it? Yeah. Until they're all submerged, which is uh, somehow a more graceful way... There's an elegance to it. Yes,
1: <laughs> which I mean, the ending of Perfect Day ends. It, it's rather neat. where they, they finally set off. They drive down the street and immediately into a giant water-filled sinkhole in the ground, and they 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 disappear into it. And it just ends with these five hats bobbing on the surface. So it's nice to see some people descending into
0: water. Uh for comedic purposes after rather than into silage or the mud of the first world war trenches, which we've had yeah, i mean earlier on if
1: if there's if there's a theme that these four films have had, it's all sort of been people sinking into liquid <laughs> um i mean yeah i mean in retrospect, I think this is one of one of my favorite laurel and Hardy shorts. It's got a nice mix of humorous styles, it's got some genuinely hilarious moments, which even after nearly a century still feel fresh. I mean, you could watch it today and you could show it to a child and they would love it, I think, because Stan and Ollie are such fun characters and the gags are so evergreen. Um, I really enjoyed it. And it was nice to rediscover having not given it much thought for such a long time. Yes, thank you for
0: for introducing me
1: to it. So, uh, looking at the, the whole... Program of shorts that I've arranged for you. Do you think that the that 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 there is perhaps an a, another theme aside from the violence of man or people descending into liquid,
0: or the, or the supremacy of the visual strata in the medium of cinema?
1: Uh, no, no, that's probably true. I mean, I did I did choose all of these pretty much separately, independently, and they don't really ha- are supposed to have anything in common at all. It but, was
0: fairly extraordinary how three of them all seemed so um, so thematically linked, except for Lauren and Hardy. So I, I just assumed you'd added that as a palate cleanser.
1: Well, that's why I wanted to have the comedy last, because I thought, you you know, you want to leave the theatre with a a smile yeah. on your face. But um, I think it's looking at it as a programme of different kinds of short films. I think this gives a nice overview to what you can do with a short film. You can have these tight focus stories of of different types. You can have a little parable about war or an allegory about the oppression of man or a story to frighten children into behaving or just have Laurel and Hardy hitting each other. And although this podcast is based around feature films, there could be an argument that I might look more at short films in the future because that seems to yield equally rich pickings.
0: Yes, and if you're the sort of person whose mind is forever looking for, for connections, then it's, <laughs> then it's an open
1: invitation, isn't it? Thanks to Paul for making time for this recording. Series 14 of Jago and Lightfoot, for which Paul wrote two of the four episodes, The Red Hand and The Corridors of Power, is available now from BigFinish.com. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast, with almost 100 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at Cinema underscore Limbo, and Podnos is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time... Okay, Grandpa! been listening to cinema limbo hosted and produced by jeremy phillips with editing and music by philip alderman cinema limbo is part of the podnose podcasting network so please visit us at www.podnose.com